But if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John chapter 7. John 7, this is the third lesson on this uh, great chapter, uh, chapter 7, the Gospel of John. Uh, remember a few things we've said uh, so far, um, past few weeks we've been in this chapter. This is coming on the heels of chapter 6, obviously, which was uh, this mass defection from Christ by the, the people of Galilee. Uh, many of disciples have left him. The Jewish leadership has been plotting his death since chapter 5. Much of the crowd has grown dissatisfied with him. Some are calling him a deceiver. Some are accusing him of demon possession. Others treat him superficially. And still others call him Messiah, but it's a very superficial understanding of Messiah. And one of the themes that we're going to see in John 7 that really brings this whole chapter together is that there's all these differing responses to Jesus, and yet they're all unified in their unbelief towards him. Almost nobody agrees about anything in John chapter 7, and they all agree about one thing, that he is not the Christ, is what they all conclude. We're going to learn this morning there's much confusion and disagreement going on among the people. They disagree about the official position of the Jewish leadership. They disagree about um, whether people are really trying to kill him or not. They disagree about the true qualifications for Messiah. They disagree about the meaning of the very words Jesus speaks. There's very little agreement among the people, and yet they're all unified in their rejection of him. So that's why we've entitled this this whole chapter, Fulfillment, Confusion, and Opposition at the Feast of Booths, the Messiah on display and under attack. And beginning in verse 14, this is where we were uh, last week, we began this section, we've entitled it Jesus during the middle of the feast. And so this um, section goes from verses 14 through 36, is at the middle of this eight-day-long Feast of Booths, in Jerusalem. And he goes up to the temple to teach. And the purpose of this section, verses 14 through 36, is not only to teach us that many people were confused and rejected Christ, it's here to tell us why so many people were confused and rejected Christ. There are three clear subsections. Look at um, your Bibles, verses 14 through 24, all focus on the crowd. That is, the, the, these multitudes of people who've been pouring into Jerusalem for this feast. And then verses 25 through um, 31, all focus on the Jerusalemites, the, the, the specific inhabitants of Jerusalem, their responses. 
And then verses 32 to 36 focus on the responses of the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that's really how the uh, section is laid out. And the purpose is to teach how each three of these groups respond to Christ and why they all reject him. Gave it a subtitle, Three Reasons for the Rejection of Messiah. Last week we tackled A, verses 14 to 24, the failure to perceive the divine source of Jesus' teaching. As far as they could tell, Jesus had an incredible ability teaching incredible authority mastery of over the old testament but they concluded that he was nothing more than a self-appointed teacher with a self-constructed message he didn't teach like any of the other rabbis rabbis taught by constantly referencing the previous rabbi and extending this tradition rabbi so-and-so taught this and he taught this and he taught this how rabbinical teaching went. Jesus didn't do any of that. He spoke and declared the very words of God. And so they hear him and they say, no matter how good you, you teach, it could not be regarded as anything other than uncredible. It sounds like you've constructed your own message. It's not aligned with any of our tradition. And such a kind of person would be deemed as arrogant. Beyond this, many of the crowd were familiar with Jesus did back in chapter 5, where he heals this man on the Sabbath. So not only is he coming and teaching as an expert rabbi, but not referencing any of their rabbis, he also flaunted the Sabbath traditions back in chapter 5. He heals a man on Sabbath, and he tells him to take up his bed and walk. So the people are angry at him. They've been holding this inner hostility for a long time. Their problem, however... And the reason why their judgment is flawed about him is that they do not truly desire to do God's desire. That's what Jesus said. If you desire to do God's desire, you will know about my teaching. If it comes from God or if it comes from myself. If God's will, as it was revealed in the Old Testament, God's will was revealed perfectly in the law of Moses... If God's will truly resonated in their hearts, if it's what they truly loved and believed and submitted to, then when Christ came onto the scene teaching it, they would have recognized it in his words. It's perfect alignment with God's will in the Old Testament. It's perfect accord with God's desire. And not only his words, but his works. If their hearts were truly to do the will of God, they would have seen that his healing of a man on the Sabbath was no violation of the Sabbath. In fact, it actually fulfilled the very purposes of the Sabbath and of God's entire law. The reason the people reject him, the reason they fail to know the source of his teaching, is that they don't have hearts which truly know and love God's law. That's what Jesus' conclusion was about them. In other words, his rejection by the people spoke greater volumes about their condition than it did of his credibility. So that was where we were last week, and now this week we come to be the presumption about the origins of Jesus' person, verses 25 to 31. And these verses are going to go on to talk about the Jerusalemites. So look at verse 25. 
some of the people of Jerusalem. So that's the focus. These are the inhabitants of Jerusalem in this section. And if the previous issue that was at stake was the origin of Jesus' words, then the issue that's at stake here is the origin of Jesus' person. Where did he come from? So first, in verses 25 to 27, the Jerusalemites conjecture about Jesus' identity. And they begin by questioning the position of the Jewish leadership. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not the man, this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities do not really know uh, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So they begin by questioning the position of the Jewish leadership. They perceive that Jesus has been going unopposed in his teaching. He's been teaching a long time now in the temple. And they're not stopping him. He's being unhindered. Nobody's coming to arrest him. Little do they know that the reason for that is that his mission cannot be hindered. He's on a mission from the Father. It cannot be stopped. He's boldly speaking, not because he's unopposed, but because he's submitted to his Father. They don't know that. All they know is that they see him teaching boldly and openly. And they question about the official position of the Jewish leadership. Look what it says. They say, is this not the one they are seeking to kill? This is the third time that chapter 7 has told us that they are after killing, murdering Jesus. These people know that the Jewish authorities are wanting, or, or at least were wanting, to put him to death. Now this is really interesting. Look back at verse 19 and 20. When Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, Why are you seeking to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So the crowd there is saying, nobody's seeking to kill you. You must be paranoid. Who's after you? But here we get this group saying, is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? So what's going on here? It's most likely because the crowd back in verse 20 was this group of pilgrims all flooding into Jerusalem for this feast. They, they're not very aware of the plottings of the Jewish leadership. But here we have the Jerusalemites, these inhabitants of Jerusalem who would have been much more acquainted with uh, the most wanted poster of uh, Jesus post around uh, Jerusalem. And they say, is this not the one who they're seeking to kill? The really interesting thing is that their words contradict the words of the crowd back in verse 20. They affirm that Jesus, what he said, that people are after his death, they affirm that it's true. And the irony is that they go on to agree with the crowd in their rejection of Jesus. So they disagree, and yet they come to agree. They disagree that anyone's after killing him. No, actually people are after killing him. But they agree that he's not Messiah, that he ought to be put to death. Look at their own assessment of Jesus. They first question whether the Jewish leadership has had a change of mind. I mean, up until now, Jesus was on their most wanted list, but now he's teaching publicly. And they say, the authorities, perchance, do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Their question suggests doubt. They don't really think that's the case, but in light of the fact that Jesus is unopposed, 
That's the only conclusion they can come to. What else could be the reason for it? Well, that brings us now to verse 27, where they reject the possibility of Jesus' messiahship. No sooner did they raise the possibility that he could be the Christ than they immediately dismiss it. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. It's very strong. Contrast. Can the authorities really know that he's the Christ? But we know where he comes from. No matter what the authorities may have concluded, we ourselves are quite sure that he is not the Christ, is what they're saying. And their sureness is based on their limited knowledge. They say, we know this as a fact. And their words are probably just dripping with disdain. Look how it is in English, even. We know where this one comes from. He's a Galilean. Jesus of Nazareth, not a part of the Jerusalem elite. They were quite sure they knew all there was to know about Jesus. And they looked on him with disdain. We know this one, where he is from. But now there's a question. Why is his origin, where he comes from, even important for his identity as the Messiah? What is the connection? What is the connection between knowing where he is from, his origin, and their rejection of him as Messiah, where he is from? They say, we know where he is from, therefore he cannot be Messiah. What is the connection? Well, look at the rest of verse 27. They declare their assumed prerequisites for Messiah's identity. We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they say an essential qualifier, an essential indicator of the Messiah when he comes will be that no one will know where he comes from. Now this sounds like a contradiction. Look over at verses 41 to 42 in this same chapter. <clears throat> verses 41 through 42. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It sounds like a contradiction. According to these verses, according to Micah 5, 2, um, Christ comes from Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. It's the way Herod's scribes back in Matthew 2 interpreted it. So what's going on here? How come these Jews say that nobody will know where Messiah comes from? And there's a little bit of debate uh, and disagreement when you go to the commentaries on this point. But I think the best answer comes when we recognize that Jewish expectations differed. Some people did, in fact, expect Messiah to come from Bethlehem. And they probably cited Micah 5, 2 for that expectation. But others interpreted it differently. It seems that, like the Jerusalemites here in this passage, they expected that Messiah, when he comes, would come suddenly and in a way that nobody would know where he came from. <clears throat> nobody will know his birthplace. Nobody will know about his family, his background, anything like that. He'll come suddenly onto the scene. 
That was their expectation. It was probably built on things like Malachi 3.1. Lord says, I'll come suddenly into my temple. In other words, these are contradictory expectations for Messiah. One says, he's going to come from Bethlehem. That's how you'll know him. The other says, nobody's going to know where he comes from. He's going to come on the scene and effect redemption right away. That's how you're going to know him. Contradictory expectations for what he's going to do. And yet, despite these contradictions, they uniformly reject Jesus. Listen to Craig Keener on this point. He says, this plays well to Johannine irony. Jesus' critics occasionally disbelieve him on contradictory grounds, united only in their opposition to him. In other words, you would think that he would at least be accepted by one of these groups, right? They're so opposite of one another. But they are so bent against him that they use their expectations, whatever they are, against him. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Hold that thought. I want to draw your attention first to the irony going on in these verses. John is a master of irony. We've already seen it in the gospel. Chapter 7 is perhaps the thickest instance in his entire gospel. It's everywhere. The great irony is that both of these expectations... That Messiah would be unknown and that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Both of these expectations are actually fulfilled by Jesus, testifying that he is Messiah. Some reject him because they feel and they assume that he's not from Bethlehem, as they would expect Messiah to be. And yet, unbeknownst to them, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Others reject him because they're sure they know about his origin, where he comes from. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, little do they know that Jesus' origin is not in Galilee, but ultimately from God the Father. Yeah? Isn't there something referenced in the idea that he came after the order of Melchizedek, who had no father, no mother, hmm. the idea that, that there was nothing hmm. background? So you're saying that's possibly a, a, where they base some of this expectation? Where he's going to come from? Yeah, it's possible. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's very possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of uh, people look look to like the Jewish rabbis, see what, how they would be interpreting it. And uh, there's a bit of debate. So I don't know if they reference that text or not, but it's, it's very possible. Yeah, it's good. Um, so some reject him for one, others reject him for another, but Jesus fulfills, fulfills both of these. The irony is that both of these seem contradictory, and they're proving correct, and Jesus fulfills them both. But here's the key. It's because of their lack of interest to truly know Jesus and their presumption to know all there is to know about him is why they reject him. So what's wrong with these people? So both groups have expectations that are more or less built on the scriptures. That is where you have to start. Are one's expectations about Messiah or about anything else, are they built on the scriptures? If they're not, they are finite mankind's attempts to explain things, to explain reality. A futile mankind cannot explain anything ultimate about God, about Messiah. It has to be first informed by Scripture. But where do these Jews go wrong? They go wrong because they're not interested in evaluating Jesus closely to see if he does or does not align with these expectations. 
So not only do they use these expectations as a means to confirming their preconceived opinions about Jesus, but they go on to reject him. They don't press into him. So sure are they that they know Jesus is not the Christ, that their expectation is not used to evaluate their opinions, but in order to confirm what they want to be true. They've begun with the desire and the assumption he is not the Christ. They don't press into him to evaluate whether he meets their expectations or not. They use their expectations as a reason to stiff arm him. Craig Keener goes on to say, in other words, people used whatever arguments necessary to achieve their predetermined conclusions. In other words, these Jews are not coming to Jesus with an unbiased desire to know him and know whether or not he fulfills these expectations. They come in with their own assumption that he is not the Christ, and they ignorantly use their expectations against him. They're not like Nathaniel. Go back to chapter 1. Remember how Nathaniel came to Jesus? Chapter 1, verse 46. Philip tells Nathaniel, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets have written, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said to him in verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? His expectation. Messiah, really? Come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite, in whom there is no guile. There is no mixed motivations. There's no deceit in Nathanael's coming. He came and went and saw Jesus for himself. He had his thoughts, his expectations. He pressed into Christ. These people are not interested in doing that. They have their opinions. They don't want him to be Christ. And so they use their expectations against him. John Calvin put it this way. And indeed, there is not a more destructive plague than when men are so intoxicated by the scanty portion of knowledge which they possess that they boldly reject everything that is contrary to their opinion. Their expectations, in other words, were a convenient excuse to reject Christ, not a legitimate standard to which they were unable to make Christ align. These people here are not neutrally seeking Christ. They're content with the amount of knowledge that they have about him because it confirms the answer that they want to be true. And it's the same today, isn't it? This is the basic problem with unbelief. It's not that Christ or the scriptures are not credible. This is the basic problem. It's that people do not want them to be true. And from this, they're content with the amount of knowledge that they possess, as limited as it may be, in order to justify themselves why Christ and the scriptures are not credible. They pick out errors in the Bible, being ignorant either of the meager amount of knowledge that they have or even that scholarship has. Well, archaeology hasn't found that, as though archaeology has found every single thing there is to find. Instead of a tiny slice of the pie of knowledge that could be found out there. Or their faulty interpretation of the Bible. 
finding one problem in one place where the Bible clearly addresses it in another. The root problem is that they are of the world. They do not want Christ, and they use their expectations against him. Well, that brings us now to verses 28 through 29. Christ rebukes their hard-hearted ignorance. Christ confronts their presumption that they know all there is to know about him. And in response, Jesus, in verse 28, says that he cries out in the temple while he was teaching, and he says, you know me and you know where I am from. Now, this can be read as a statement. Jesus is affirming yeah, you know a little bit. Or it could be a question. You know me? You know where I am from? Really? But either way, Jesus is going to go on in these verses to reveal they don't know anything near what they thought they knew about him. And that, in this way, he actually fulfills their very expectation. So first, Jesus reveals the deficiency of their knowledge about the nature of his coming in verse 28 what it says. Jesus proclaimed the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. The crowd in verse 15 assumed Jesus was a self-appointed teacher, that he's come with his own message. Now the Jews here assume he has a self-appointed mission. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He's just come in and proclaiming something about himself on his own. And so in verse 28, Jesus explains that he has not literally come from himself. I've not come of my own accord. So the Jews are ignorant of the fact that he, his coming is not of his own initiative. Just as his teaching is not self-produced, so his coming is not self-appointed. They're also ignorant that his coming is rooted in the reality of his sender. But the one who sent me is true. In other words, so long as they do not recognize Jesus as one sent, so long will they be ignorant of his true identity. Jesus doesn't even bring up the birthplace issue. He takes them all the way back to his original origin in God the Father. God who sent him. Because until you get that, you will not truly know Christ. So their knowledge is deficient because they do not see the true God is the one standing behind Jesus coming. But to know Christ rightly, you must know him as this. That's why the Trinity is so important. We've brought it up over and over again. If you do not know Christ as very God of very God, but sent by God the Father as his representative, you do not know Christ. Jesus declaring, you think you know me, you have no idea who I am. And you have no idea where I come from. But he takes it one step further now. In verses 28b through 29, he reveals the emptiness of their knowledge of God. Very end of 28, in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. They're ignorant of Jesus' origin as one from God, but even more fundamental, they're ignorant of God himself. Had they truly known God the Father, they would have recognized his son. Yeah. <clears throat> when he says uh, he, like in English, it has like a capital P, but it's a very generic, he can be very generic. Mm -hmm. When in that language that mm -hmm. he's speaking, when he says he, 
like a generic key or is it like mm -hmm. key like a reference like only a title to God? Yeah, it would be ge generic, just like in English. The context of Jesus' words and have people been tracking with him this whole time. So look back up even to uh, um, what he was teaching earlier, verses 14 through 17, clearly referring to God. So if they're tracking with him, they're going to pick up. One who sent him is the one who gave him this message, God, right? But they don't get it. And that's just the common theme of this misunderstanding in John's gospel. Jesus assumes they should get it, and they, they don't. But good question. Sure. So he begins with a stunning rebuke here. He says, whom you do not know. Back in verse 19, he told these faithful Jews that they don't keep the law. And now he's telling these faithful Jews that they don't know God. So it's no wonder they hated him and that they wanted him dead. He says, you don't know God. The greatest irony of all is that they should come to this feast to pretend to worship the true God while rejecting his son. And then he goes to a stunning claim here in verse 29. He says, I know him because I have come from him. Jesus possesses perfect knowledge of the Father. He is from him in a way that no prophet could ever claim. He has come from God. He has seen God. Look back to chapter 6 with me. Look at verse 46. The same phrase, come from God, is used here. What is this that Jesus is claiming that he has come from him? says, not that any has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Christ has come from God, not as any prophet. He has come from God's right hand in his bosom. Chapter 1, verse 18. He was with God in the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. That is why he knows him. He's been sent from God as God's representative to reveal God perfectly, and the Jews are rejecting him. And as they do, they give testimony that they neither know God, nor, nor do they know Christ. In this way, when Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. Their expectation is correct. Well, to this, the Jerusalemites respond in verse 30 through 31. They respond with unified division. They respond with completely opposite responses. They're divided in their conclusions about him, and yet they are unified in their unbelief. Verse 30 gives us the pernicious desires of some. Look at verse 30. It says, So when they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Some from this crowd attempt to arrest Jesus, these Jerusalemites, to seize him, presumably to put him to death or to turn him in to the authorities. But they fail. They can't do it. Why? Look at this note here of God's sovereignty, the hindrance of God's sovereign purposes. It says, because his hour had not yet come. God was sovereign over the mission of Christ down to the very hour of his death. And nothing can make it come sooner. Nothing can hinder it. This hour will come up over and over. It came up first back in chapter 2 verse 4. In the beginning in chapter 12, Jesus will say, my hour has come. The appointed time. 
just a couple days before the crucifixion, all the way up until chapter 19, on the sixth hour in which he was crucified. Perfectly ordained by the Father. They attempt to arrest him to put him to death here. They're not able. Some respond with these desires to put him to death, but then some respond with signs of faith in verse 31. Yet, many people, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is obviously a better category than those who are trying to kill Jesus, but if we've been tracking with John, even this response is insufficient. Signs are meant to encourage faith, they're meant to drive you to Messiah, but they are meant for you to embrace Messiah, not just as a sign worker, but for the kind of Messiah that he came to be. That's not what we get with this crowd. They stop short. He's a sign worker, and ultimately they fall short of embracing him as the kind of Christ that he really is. And in this way, the Jerusalemites reject Messiah because of their presumption about his origins. It's the second reason. Let's go on to the third reason really quickly here. The misunderstanding about Jesus' declared destination. <clears throat> verse 32, the Sanhedrin attempts to arrest Jesus. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews. Uh, it was made up of different sects within Judaism, the primary ones being the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If you know anything about them, you know that they did not get along very well. They were opposites. They didn't like each other. Think Republican, Democrat. They didn't cooperate about anything. And it's very interesting is that these two enemies are coming together to work together in their opposition of Messiah. Once sharp enemies and now plotting together. This verse tells us that the Pharisees hear the crowd muttering these things about Christ. Pharisees, just like the crowd has already concluded, he's not Messiah. We don't want him to be Messiah. And he must be silent so the crowd doesn't come to some other conclusion. And so they join forces. The high priests, which were almost always the Sadducees, and the Pharisees sent servants. And this is yet another instance in this chapter of those who were divided coming together in their opposition of Christ. And as the ruling council, they sent servants, or these would be the temple guard, those who would maintain the temple precincts. They sent them to arrest Jesus. And then we come to verses 33 through 34, the perplexing words of Jesus. He somehow comes to know about their plan, know about them sending the temple guard out to arrest him, and he responds. They probably don't arrest him right away because they're looking for an opportune time. They don't want to stir up the crowd. And in the meantime, Jesus speaks publicly again, but this time aimed at the Jewish leadership. And he begins by declaring his ordained remainder of time. Look what he says. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer then I am going to him who sent me. It says, a little while longer I am with you. Six months, to be specific, six months from now will be his final Passover in which he will be crucified and return to the Father. That's it. We're nearing the end of his time on earth. This is a warning to them. 
Their timing cannot hinder, um, his timing cannot be hindered by their plots. They should be concerned about their own souls because he is going to be returning to his sender. I'm going to him who sent me. For us, it's obvious that he's talking about the Father, and it should have been obvious to them, but it wasn't. Jesus was sent by the Father, it was his origin, and in six months he will return to the Father through his cross and the resurrection. And because of this, verse 34, he will be inaccessible. Look what he says. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. It's a warning for them. Now is the time for them to reckon with Christ. If they fail to receive him as Christ, they cannot go to where he is going, to the Father. Rather, they will die in their sin. Look over at chapter 8, verse 21. It says the same words here. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's what he is warning them here. They cannot go where he's going. And he's going to tell his disciples these same words, that they cannot go where he's going immediately. They'll follow him after. Some encouragement for you as disciples. Look over to chapter 13. These same words used again. Chapter 13, verse 33. <clears throat> little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so also now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Look down at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Look down at chapter 14, verse 5, for these great verses. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's where he's going. Except through me. Jesus says to the Jewish leadership, you cannot go where I'm coming. He says to the disciples, you'll come afterwards to the Father. Believer in Christ, through Christ you will be with the Father. Amazing. God the Father. Through Christ alone. We'll look now, back to our passage. Almost done. Chapter 7, verse 35 to 36. We get the ironic misunderstanding of the Jews. Let me read it. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They don't know about his destination because they don't know about his origin. And so they propose this ironic interpretation. They don't know he's speaking about the Father. They wonder where in the world he could go that they couldn't track him down to kill him. 
but his words make him uneasy, and so they propose this interpretation even they think is a stretch. They ask if he could mean that he'll go to, to the diaspora, that's these Jews living scattered all over the Roman world, and find shelter among them. Is he going to go to the dispersion in order to teach the Greeks? The idea is that, is he going to take shelter there in order to teach the Greeks, since obviously he's failed to win the faithful Jews here? Is that where he's going to go? And while that's obviously not what Jesus meant by his words, here we get one more note of irony. Why? Because his message would one day go to the Greeks. But it would not be because he failed in his mission. Rather, as he is rejected and crucified by the Jews, his mission would be accomplished. And through his rejection, through his crucifixion, he would not only accomplish redemption, but bring in all the sheep of God scattered abroad. We don't have time. You can go look at references there, 11, 49, 52, chapter 12, verse 20 and following. And John, the opponents often speak better than they know, and they do here as well. They reject him only to be a means of fulfilling his mission. And in verse 36, they restate, they restate his words verbatim. They say, what does he mean? And they requote him. They still don't get it. And they're confused and reject him. So that's three reasons why the Jews rejected Christ at the Feast of Booths. They reject him because they assume they, that he's come with his own message. They reject him because they think they know his origin. And they reject him because of a failure to understand his mission. And think that he has failed among, among the Jewish people. Any questions, comments before I... Your, some implications. We're two minutes over. Any thoughts? <clears throat> it's a rich passage indeed, and it should bolster you with confidence. It should drive you into Scripture. That's your presupposition. That's where you're grounding all of your hope in the surety of God's Word, knowing how Christ so perfectly aligns it. It should give you boldness if you, as you defend the faith and as you explain Christ to unbelievers. And yet, no, this is the default of unbelievers. They're the world. They don't reject Christ because he's incredible. They reject him because they don't want it to be true. It's the same with the Jews then, same with the Jews now, same with the world. So, let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the promises of the gospel. We will follow Christ to where he goes afterward. Thank you, Lord. And Father, while we're here, you've sent us on mission. You sent your gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. In this way, your purposes and plans are being accomplished. Messiah is vindicated, is glorious and successful. Help us trust him. Help us love him and rest confident and firm on the reliability of his words. We love you. Prepare us for the service to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Ask all these things. Amen.